Hey everyone, I too want to welcome you to this online service of the Hershey Free Church. My name is George Davis. Thanks for being a part of our service today. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to 1 Kings chapter 17 as we continue our journey through the Old Testament entitled, Love This Book. Now, my guess is some of us are from kind of small, out-of-the-way kinds of places, towns or communities. Maybe, maybe you've grown up in one of those places, either here in Pennsylvania or somewhere else in the country. One of those places that you always have to explain where it is because other people haven't heard of it. If you have that as your background, if that's kind of where you're from, then in some ways you can relate to the individual we're going to be talking about today. Because his name is Elijah, and he is Elijah the Tishbite. He's from a place called Tishbe, which apparently would be located today in some part of uh, northern Jordan, but uh, the exact location has been lost to history. It was just one of those out-of-the-way places. And so today, the archaeologists, historians don't exactly know where it is. Once again, we're continuing our journey through the Old Testament that we call Love This Book. And we're coming to this place where Elijah plays a central role in the storyline. But I think to understand that role, we've we've actually got to set the context. So let me do that for a moment. We'll kind of go back to and and recap some of the things we've talked about earlier. We've looked at uh, the nation of Israel coming into the land, and eventually after they settle into the land God gives them, the land of Canaan, uh, they ask for a king. And so we've looked at those major kings, the first three kings in Israel's history. First there was Saul, then the great king David, who was followed by his son Solomon. And this is the time known as the United Monarchy. Now, as as we saw last week, Solomon accomplished much during his reign. He was one of the great builders of the ancient world. There was much achievement in his life. Yet, as we saw, there were also cracks in the foundation of who he was. In tragic ways, his life ends. And by the end of his life, he was engaged in idolatry, and, and the worship of idols was becoming more prominent in the land of Israel. And these, these issues would only become more acute as the storyline continues. After his death, due to a variety of factors, the nation of Israel actually splits in two, and it, it looks something like this. We end up with what's sometimes referred to the nor- as, uh, this is the northern kingdom or Israel, and then the, the southern kingdom known as Judah. And as you continue reading the storyline in Kings, it, it becomes, <laughs> becomes a bit... Uh, complicated because you're, you're constantly reading through the different kings of Israel and the different kings of Judah. And of course, as you go through this history, particularly the history of the northern kingdom or Israel, uh, you're really going through an endless strings of disappointing kings, of kings who engaged in evil in a variety of ways. And at times it feels like it's only getting worse. Eventually, we come to the reign of the king known as Ahab, and he's, he's introduced to us this way. He's described this way. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king who had gone before him. And it's during the reign of Ahab that Elijah, this guy from this out-of-the-way place, comes onto the scene. It's during the reign of Ahab that Elijah really takes center stage. And as Elijah becomes part of the storyline, we're introduced to him as a prophet. Now, let me ask you this. 
what, what comes to your mind when I say the word prophet? What, comes, what do you think about when you hear the word prophet? I think often we think about the people who, who wrote in the Bible, who, who are characters in the Bible who talked about the future and how God would fulfill his promises in the future and what that would look like. And, and of course, that's, that was part of the role of prophet, but the role was, was so much more than that. It really was. In fact, here are kind of other things to keep in mind when we think about the prophets. I think foundationally, when we think about the prophets, prophets like Elijah, we need to understand that they were covenant watchdogs. Um, remember, and I've talked about this before, as you read the history of Israel, the book of Deuteronomy is always running in the background, right? Deuteronomy was, was the constitution of the nation. Deuteronomy described God's relationship, God's covenant with his people, and what that, what that relationship would look like and how the people were to flourish in that relationship. And, and this included the expectations of how the kings were to flourish and what they were to do. And as, as kings would move away from that covenant, as they would violate it and violate that relationship in different ways, the prophets were the people who came onto the scene and said, hey, hey, don't you remember we're in this relationship with God? Don't you, don't you remember who he is? Don't you remember what happens when we violate this covenant? Don't you remember how he told us that we could flourish? So the, the prophets show up on the scene in the storyline of Israel to, to remind the kings and to remind the nation as a whole of what the covenant relationship with God is to look like. And I think then with that, there are other parts of their role uh, they become the ones who call out idolatry and injustice. They challenged Israel to repent and to follow God. And they remind the people, the nation, of their calling, their unique calling among the nations as God's people. So, as Ahab engages in all sorts of idolatry and evil, <laughs> Elijah the prophet from this out-of-the-way place shows up on the scene. And here's how that story begins in chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. <laughs> That's quite an opening line, right? I mean, when... When, when Elijah takes center stage, he does so in a very dramatic way. And, and he makes this powerful statement of warning and judgment. And he, he's, not simply, he's not simply addressing the weather. He's also addressing Ahab's idolatry. Because you see, the Canaanite god Baal was worshipped as the one who controlled the rain. So really from the very beginning of Elijah's ministry, we see that he has come onto the stage of history to confront idolatry. So the story continues, and it doesn't rain, and it doesn't rain. Now, as you can imagine, uh, as this story continues, uh, Elijah's dramatic pronouncement did not make him popular. Arguably, he becomes the top of the list, uh, the most wanted list in, in the kingdom of Israel. But nonetheless, as, as you read in chapter 17 and chapter 18, in dramatic fashion, uh, God protects Elijah, and God continues to provide for him. 
And finally the time comes after three years, three years with no rain, finally the time comes for Elijah to directly confront King Ahab. So he goes to the palace administrator, a guy by the name of Obadiah, and he says, I want to see the king. Now you need to understand by this time, Ahab has been actively looking for Elijah. Furthermore, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, has started a campaign to, to, in essence, eliminate all of God's prophets in the nation. Consequently, this guy named Obadiah, who was faithful to God, had already hidden a hundred faithful prophets in two different caves. So Elijah comes to Obadiah, the palace administrator, and says, hey, I want to I meet with the king. And Obadiah looks at him and says, are you crazy? Do you want me to go tell him that? If I go tell him that you want to meet him and you don't show up, he will have my neck. But Obadiah, Elijah says, no, I'm serious. I am ready to meet the king. So the showdown begins. And we begin seeing this directly in the middle of chapter 18. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, right? The prophet's coming to meet you. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. (laughs) When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you? You, you troubler of Israel. And interestingly, (laughs) Elijah just shoots right back. No, you are the troubler of Israel. This, This is a dramatic moment. And as this moment unfolds, Ahab assembles 450 prophets of the Canaanite God. And they meet Elijah on Mount Carmel for this dramatic showdown. And Elijah says, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So the showdown continues. And and Elijah proposes a challenge. And he says this, look, let's each sacrifice to our own God. And whichever God responds with fire to consume the sacrifice, he is the true God. So the prophets of the God Baal go first, right? They, in the morning, they prepare this sacrifice, and they spend all morning, and probably it seems into early afternoon, petitioning their God, wailing before their God, and Elijah even taunts them along the way. But nothing happens. Finally, Elijah has his sacrifice prepared. And during the preparation, just to make things more dramatic, he has the sacrifice doused with water, not once, not twice, but three times, so that now it is dripping wet. And then he prays. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. He prays that powerful prayer 
inviting God to respond in dramatic fashion. And God answers. And the sacrifice, even dripping wet, is completely consumed in fire. Finally, God has revealed that he is the true God. And from that moment on, various factors are then set in motion as you continue to read the narrative. The false prophets are rounded up and killed. Furthermore, on the distant horizon, because from the top of Mount Carmel, you can look out toward the Mediterranean, and on the distant horizon, this storm cloud is just slowly beginning to form. And finally, the clouds darken, and the rains burst forth. It's a downpour. The rain is back. Meanwhile, Elijah heads east across the Jezreel Valley to the community of Jezreel. Yet, just when it looked like his triumph was complete, we get to chapter 19, and it seems like everything falls apart. Because Elijah gets to Jezreel, and and he gets this message. Remember Jezebel, right, the queen? He gets the message, (laughs) that she is now going to do everything in her power to eliminate you, Elijah. She wants him dead more than anything else. And when Elijah gets that message, here's his response. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. He runs. He goes south. He goes to the, the community of Beersheba and then he goes further south still, moving into the desert, desert really, of the Sinai region. And finally, as he's in this wilderness area in the desert, he is, he's weary, he's exhausted, he's discouraged. He collapses, and he says, you know what? I'm done. God, just, just take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And in the middle of the desert, he falls asleep. Now, why is he there? Well, because he's scared. I mean, there, there was a legitimate threat on his life. And that's true. But you know what? There had been a bounty on his head for the last three years. And that didn't keep him from confronting King Ahab in dramatic fashion in chapter 18. So, so how do we get from kind of the fearlessness of Elijah in chapter 18, to the fearfulness of Elijah in chapter 19? I think think the answer to that question is this. Elijah wasn't simply fearful. I think think Elijah was also frustrated. Why? Because, you see, Elijah, Elijah had expected something dramatic to happen after the sacrifice had been consumed. He had expected that, you know, either, either the king and the queen are going to repent and turn around in dramatic fashion, or there's going to be the start of a revolution. There's going to be a start of a coup, and the people are going to come back to God. There was going to be some additional dramatic moment. That was his expectation. But it doesn't happen. And I think tired, weary, fearful, frustrated alone in the desert, Elijah feels like, you know what? God has let me down. And I think with that, he's frustrated with himself. Um, I think he feels like, you know what? I gave it my best shot. I did all that I could. 
There's nothing more that I can do. And even that didn't work. Have you, have you ever been in that situation? Do you know that experience in a relationship, in kind of a school setting, in a work setting where it feels like whatever you do, it's not good enough? Do you know that feeling? Do you know that level of frustration? Well, I think, I think that was Elijah in the desert. I'm tired. I'm done. I'm no better than my ancestors. So frustrated, Elijah feels like God has let him down. But I think the truth is this. He wasn't let down by God. He was let down by his expectations of God. Listen to that again. Elijah wasn't let down by God. He was let down by his expectations of God. You see, I think up to this point throughout so much of his life, it it had appeared that, you know what, God always worked in, in dramatic, miraculous fashion. So I think that was Elijah's expectation. If God's going to be working, that's what it should look like. But this time that didn't happen. Uh, maybe, maybe you can think of it this way. It's what Elijah had did, and, and he wasn't aware of this, but I think what Elijah had really done was this. He put God in a box, right? And the box was God always works in dramatic fashion. God always works in miraculous fashion. And that's, that's the way he had put him in a box. But then Elijah encounters a situation where it doesn't work that way. He encounters a situation where he discovers his box is empty. Now, can I suggest to you that I think in similar fashion, you and I, we can do the same thing today. Without realizing it, it's like we can put God in a box. I can put God in in the box of, you know, if I respond in obedience, God will always make life work for me, right? And that's the way he works. That's, that's, but that's putting God in a box. I can put God in the box of saying, you know, up to this point, it's always felt like God has made my plans come true. So that's how God works. But I'm putting God in a box. Or maybe I can put God in a box this way. You know, up to this point, it's always felt like I knew what God was doing. His his work was obvious. And yet what I don't realize is, if I presume that's the way he always works, I'm putting God in a box. Have you ever done that? I mean, that's, that's what Elijah did. He put God in a box. But then he encountered the situation where he discovered his God box was empty. And that can happen to us as well. I think maybe even for some of us over over the last year, and just some of the challenges and experiences that we've had to go through, uh, maybe you found yourself discovering that the God box that you developed is empty. You put God in a box, you didn't fully realize it, but now it just, it just feels empty. And the truth is, in some sense, you find yourself just right there, seated next to Elijah. Well, his story continues. God provides for him in the desert. He goes farther south. He goes into a cave on Mount Horeb. And then God engages him directly. And we read this 
in chapter 19. And the word of the Lord came to him. What, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Can you, can you hear his frustration? Do you just hear the frustration, the sense of failure, the despondency? But God says, I, I want you to stand by the edge of this cave because I'm going to pass by. And the text says that, you know, a mighty wind comes by, and then there's the earthquake, and then there's fire. But in all of those miraculous displays of power, there's some sense in which God is not really present. But all of that drama is then followed by a gentle whisper. You can even translate this this language as it, it was a powerful moment of silence. It's that moment of quiet after all the drama. And Elijah realizes God is actually in that moment. He expected him in the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, but God was actually most present in the gentle whisper. And interestingly, as you read the text, the conversation then repeats itself. Once again, God says, why are you here? And once again, Elijah responds with this very same answer. But this time, the conversation is followed by a recommissioning. Elijah, you're to head north, and he is to anoint certain people. And I think there's a parallel that we are intended to see between these two conversations. And here's ultimately what I think God is is telling Elijah. Elijah, you expected a dramatic change after Mount Carmel, but it didn't happen. So you presume that I wasn't at work. (laughs) Elijah, you put me in your box. But Elijah, I don't fit in your box. Just because I didn't respond the way you expected me to respond, that doesn't mean that I'm not at work. In fact, Elijah, these individuals that I want you to go and anoint, these individuals will actually be the individuals that carry out my judgment against the house of Ahab. Yes, judgment is coming. It's just not the way you expected. Because Elijah, I don't fit in your box. You see, Elijah, I don't simply work through the miraculous. (laughs) I also work through the mundane. I think that's a message for Elijah, and I think that is a message for us as well. God wants us to see, I don't simply work through the miraculous. I also work through the mundane. I need to understand that because the truth is God doesn't fit in my box. Now, with that in mind, let me, can I just make three very brief final observations about what we can take away from the life of this fascinating figure known as Elijah? Three quick observations. First, in times of uncertainty, go back to what is certain. In times of uncertainty, go back to what is certain. In the season of frustration and disappointment and failure, Elijah goes south, and he eventually goes to Mount Horeb. 
Interestingly, Mount Horeb is, is also known as Mount Sinai, and I don't think this is accidental. I mean, this is the place where Moses received the law. Furthermore, if you'll recall, it was in a cave on Mount Horeb that Moses directly encounters God, and quite possibly Elijah is in the same cave. And I think the truth is this, in this moment that's been confusing and frustrating and and just discouraging for Elijah, where he's wondering about God, where he's questioning God, Elijah heads back to the place where he knows God has revealed himself before. He heads back to that which is certain. And likewise, I think for us in times of uncertainty, we we need to go back to what is certain. We need to go back to the truth of God's work in the gospel and his faithfulness to us through Jesus Christ. We need to go back to the reality that he promises to be with us and he promises to finish what he has started, even in those moments when we don't fully understand what that looks like. So in times of uncertainty, go back to what is certain. Secondly, know that God can meet you in the desert. Know that God can meet you in the desert. That's exactly what he does here with Elijah. He provides food. He provides rest. And as you read the the text, he also reminds Elijah that he's not alone. Likewise, if, if even now, if you feel like you're in kind of one of those desert places, know that I think God wants to meet you there, wherever you're at. And I think one of the ways he does that is, is through connection and and, and relationship with others. So if you're, if you're in one of those places, would you please understand you don't have to be there. You don't have to go through this alone. As your church family, we would love to walk through whatever you're going through with you. And just know that we are available, so please reach out. And we can help and come alongside in a variety of ways. Let me, let me just re- even remind you that we always have a staff member on call 24-7 that you can reach through our church number, 717-533-4848. So know that God can meet you in the desert and know that you don't have to be there alone. Finally, realize that desert experiences can lead to fruitfulness. Realize that desert experiences can lead to fruitfulness. I mean, that's what, that's what happens to Elijah. It turns out the, the desert moment becomes a redeployment moment. Elijah, I want you to get up. I want you to go back and hear the things that you are going to do. You don't realize it, Elijah, but I'm preparing you for the next chapter. I'm preparing you for the next season. You know, even as we come out of what we're going through, even as we enter kind of a post-pandemic reality, whatever that's going to look like, I look forward to hearing stories. I look forward to hearing the stories that, that some of you are, are starting to experience or have experienced of how God is kind of stretching you, challenging you, kind of doing a work in, at the core of who you are. And what we don't fully realize that at this moment is even this experience may truly prove to be a process of preparation. I think that's true for us individually. I think that's true for us as a church because even now at a leadership level, we're really working through the question, how is God wanting us to engage this new situation, this new context? What does is, what is ministry and fulfilling our mission look like in the new realities that we are experiencing? What is God preparing for us as a church community as we move forward?
You see, the truth is, even these desert experiences can lead to fruitfulness. And we need to be, we need to be aware of that. So God says to Elijah, and I think God is saying to us, guess what? I don't fit in your box. I don't fit in your box. But that doesn't mean I'm not at work. Because I don't simply work through the miraculous. I also work through the mundane. May we be open to that truth. Would you join me in prayer? So gracious God, we we come to this fascinating story of the person of Elijah who is bold in so many ways, and yet he goes through this season where it's a season of intense pain and frustration and perceived failure. And yet it's also, I think, a moment of great learning for him because he's learning that you don't fit in his box. And Father, I think in many ways, maybe many of us can, can relate even over the last few months that we've had to come to grips with that, that we've, we've kind of had this box that we put you in, but the truth is you don't fit. And, and frankly, I think over the last few months, some of us is, have really discovered that our boxes are actually empty. But Father, I pray we don't just stop at that point, but I pray that we would be open to the fact that in the midst of this, you, you meet us in desert places. And that you do some of your best work in desert places. And it's often in these places that you prepare us in surprising ways for what lies ahead. So may we be open to that truth, both individually and as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, thanks for joining us. And as we start a new week, understand this. We, we worship, we celebrate the work of God. It's a work that doesn't fit in a box. And it is a work that is present not simply through the miraculous, but also through the mundane.